Hi there, your old pal Will here. My co-host Luke would be very upset with me if I didn't mention what was happening on the Michael and Us Patreon page. We have an extra episode on Patreon every week for the low, low price of five Yankee dollars per month. Recent episodes have tackled such subjects as the not-very-good new Ricky Gervais Netflix special, Supernature, the classic pro-Iraq war comedy Delta Farce starring Larry the Cable Guy, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary RBG, as well as an episode on the corporate philanthropy of U2. All that and years more content at patreon.com slash Michael and Us. Acres is the place to be. Farm living is the life for me. Land spreading out so far and wide. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Listeners to the last few episodes will know that Luke was in Vermont for the last week, week and a half, but he's back in Canada now. Uh, how are you doing, Luke? Well, I'm all right. I had a, a lovely time in uh, in Vermont. If you'll let me, though, I would like to uh, complain a little bit about what travel is like these days. I mean, I think air travel and especially international travel, soccer and unpleasant at the best of times. I don't know anybody uh, who enjoys those things. But do the people at the airport gift stores know what things cost in the real world? <laughs> Well, I'm not going to go on a tangent about this, but I mean, the duty-free shops, you know, the products in them are clearly more expensive than they would be uh, elsewhere anyway. uh, But the actual business of traveling right now, you know, amid the very fluid and kind of inconsistent restrictions and rules and procedures around around COVID, uh, all of it is really, really annoying. And if the goal uh, of any of it is to keep cases down, I really don't see a lot of it being preventative at all. So on the way into the United States, I had to take a test, uh, which, you know, that's fine. But of course, the test couldn't be free. It had to be, you know, there's some private company that's, you know, if I had to venture a guess, I haven't looked into this, so no one sue me, please. But if I had to venture a guess, probably made a strategic political donation uh, to a decision maker somewhere. Uh, And so they have this contract to operate out of the Toronto Island Airport and do these tests, which like, I never had this kind of test before, but it's called like a shallow swab. So it's just like the nasal swab test, but like, they don't actually go very far into your nose. And I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but I, I don't see how that would be uh, as effective as the other kinds of tests people have been doing. And I certainly don't think it was worth, you know, 60 bucks a piece, which is what, you know, we paid. But then the other thing is, you know, the mask rules on the flights are also totally absurd because on Canadian airlines anyway, you know, you have to wear a mask regardless of vaccination status. It's mandatory. But, you know, just like in movie theaters uh, or lots of other places uh, as of a few months ago, go in Toronto, at least, you know, you're allowed to pull them down if you're eating food or drinking or whatever. So of course, by the middle of the flight, everybody is just like, you know, no one's wearing masks anymore. (laughs) Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But anyway, you know, uh, it was nice to be in Vermont. And I very quickly forgot about all those, you know, all the minor annoyances that are, you know, associated with international travel. And then coming back, right as I was boarding the plane yesterday, uh, there were US customs agents that were interrogating everybody that was getting on the plane, which I've never seen that before. So I was asked my occupation as I was getting on a plane to fly back to Canada by a US customs agent. No idea what that's about. And then uh, when I opened my suitcase to unpack, I found a letter from my, you know, my good friends at the TSA saying that they'd uh, opened my bag to inspect the contents, which explained why the bag of tea that I bought in rural Vermont the other day uh, was split open and the contents were all over the uh, the suitcase. All my 
clothes and uh, possessions are now covered in, uh, in in loose tea. Thanks, guys. Are we getting conspiratorial? Do you think the Clinton crime syndicate is going after you? Well, I mean, given the uh, you know interrogation I was subjected to at the border, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Before we get to the movie, Luke, you mentioned that you have another dispatch from the culture <laughs> war. Well, I did mention that, and I'm glad you brought it up, because the less said about this movie we watched, the better. Um But anyway, uh, a number of people have been telling me to watch this new Star Trek show, Strange New Worlds, I think it's called. A number of people have recommended it to me. They've said that I'll like it better than some of the other uh, more recent Star Trek shows. Uh, Haven't seen it yet. Don't really know too much about it. I know that it involves Captain Christopher Pike, who really only appears in the uh, the pilot episode of the original series, which almost no one has seen. The, there was a pilot episode of the original Star Trek called The Cage, and it was so kind of cerebral and, and odd that the network basically said, well, you can keep doing the show, but you have to fire you know the whole cast and get a new cast. And so only Leonard Nimoy remained from that first episode. Anyway, apparently this, uh, this new series is kind of a prequel to uh, the original series series starring the Christopher Pike character. Unlike everything else in the culture these days, it seems that the show has yet again become, you know, a flashpoint in the culture war, uh, as evidenced by this recent op-ed published by Fox News. Star Trek writers take Starship Enterprise where it's never gone before. Woke politics. Well, this is pretty self-evidently funny because Star Trek is the woke sci-fi brand, isn't it? Hasn't that always been central to its mystique that it was sort of like vaguely center-left progressive morality tales in space? Well, I think I would be kinder to it than that. I mean, I think that in some ways you can read Star Trek as a kind of utopian socialist fantasy. I, I'm not, I don't think that Gene Roddenberry, who is the creator of Star Trek, necessarily conceived of it in those terms, but... Well, okay, what if I told you that you, on the one side you have Spock, he's a man of reason, he's a conservative, and then on the other side you have Bones, he's a man of passion, he's a liberal... And then in the middle, like, what if there was a third way that was in the middle, a a Clintonian figure, if you will, in the form of Captain Kirk? Well, I might even agree with that. But the fact is, you know, even even under (laughs) utopian socialism, you're going to have liberals, conservatives and centrists. They're just going to be operating against a different backdrop. And even the original Star Trek, the backdrop they're operating seems to be one that's basically a classless society where, you know, a multiracial, you know, interplanetary federation explores the universe. And I mean, definitely by time you get to Star Trek The Next Generation, that's more or less explicitly what's going on. Star Trek, of course, also had a laudably, I think, non-utopian streak. It was never utopian in, in the pejorative sense of sort of being naive. It's not a show about how in the future all the problems will be abolished. That's why my favorite Star Trek series in many ways is Deep Space Nine, because it's all about how even in this comparatively egalitarian time, you know, you still have to grapple with, you know, the Federation still has a deep state. There are still issues of war and peace, etc. But yes, uh, to return to your earlier point, I mean, uh, this is pretty low hanging fruit because, you know, Star Trek famously featured in, you know, in the lore, it's the it's the first interracial kiss on American TV. Someone on Twitter told me that that's actually apocryphal, but certainly uh, it would have been very rare, the kiss between Kirk and Uhura. Famously, in the, in the 90s, Star Trek The Next Generation has an episode that deals with trans issues. You know, the list goes on and on. So I don't think we really need to say too much more on that. But what I especially found interesting about this piece, or I suppose not interesting, but just emblematic, is that it reminds us that, you know, one element of, of the culture war that's especially dumb is that it reminds us uh, that one of the dumbest things about the culture war is that because both, you know, sclerotic wings of the American political divide now want to do everything through culture, uh, it means that they end up trying to claim things 
things and, and defend things that they never would have tried to claim or defend before and never would have even cared about or associated themselves with before. And I think this is especially true of conservatives. I mean, when have conservatives ever given a shit about Star Trek? You know, there's all kinds of things that become culture war flashpoints because something that's been encoded in a particular way, in a small L liberal way or in a small C conservative way in a cultural sense, you know, it kind of evolves or is changed in some way. And, you know, that makes the people who originally considered themselves the constituency for X or Y, you know, incensed. But this Star Trek Fox News op-ed is a reminder that that doesn't even have to be the case. In the self-perpetuating culture war, you always need new raw material. And what that's inevitably going to mean uh, is that you're going to find people planting their flag on stuff where they never would have planted their flag before. So conservatives are now defending Star Trek, even though it's pretty hard to imagine, I don't know, Nixon voters or something like that. You know, I, I doubt they were a big constituency for, you know, the adventures of the Starship Enterprise. You know, ditto for Reagan voters and, and George H.W. Bush voters, etc. Now, I don't want to give the writer of this op-ed too much credit credit. But one of the things he's complaining about is real and does annoy me. It just annoys me for a different reason than it annoys him. So he points out uh, stuff like uh, there's an episode of Star Trek Discovery, where I guess Stacey Abrams made a cameo as the president of the Federation or something like that. Apparently, there's some kind of January 6th reference, you know, in the new series, you know, so he says, well, to be fair, since the original 1960s, uh, Star Trek has always delved into cultural and societal issues. It's been credited with diverse cast, with tackling issues like saving the whales, remember that? And with reflecting American and global foreign policy. That's a funny way of putting it. I don't know what, re- I don't know what the verb to reflect means in that sentence. Anyway, for him, the problem with all of this is that it's partisanship for wokeness. And for me, I just kind of think the point of a utopian fantasy is that you're not bringing in like stuff you saw on MSNBC earlier that day or whatever. Like, I think it's totally absurd to complain that Star Trek has suddenly become woke. But it has become the newsroom. Right. And that's why this whole op-ed seems like a good synecdoche for, you know, the culture war and its stupidity and, and not just on the right. Already a fixture on the conservative speaking circuit, having delivered keynote speeches at the 2012 North Carolina State Republican Party Convention and 2014 National Press Club Luncheon. Trump had been regarded by many on the political landscape as nothing more than a meddling gatecrasher, more entertainment sideshow than legitimate political threat. But as evidenced throughout his years in the public eye, the resolve of one Donald J. Trump is not something to be underestimated. In 2015, shunning the big money overtures of network television, Trump dove straight into the presidential fray with a headstrong verve and tenacity previously reserved for his real estate and financial dealings, employing a take-no-prisoners approach aimed directly at the heart of America and the working men and women who call it home. And they said recently, like a few months ago, they said, please, please don't run. We've renewed The Apprentice. It did great. We had a good last season, even after... 12 years, 14... His campaign slogan was clear and concise, striking a chord with many throughout a deeply divided land. Make America great again. Well, we do have a movie on this episode. A couple episodes back, I think it was a Patreon episode, listeners will remember that I was flipping through my favorite streaming service, Tubi, looking for something to watch, and there was such a diamond mine of content there, but instead of a diamond mine, it was kind of a cubic zirconia mine. Like, there was a lot of it, and it was all bad. And we watched a documentary, a quasi-documentary about U2, basically an algorithmically generated clip show. 
And I wanted to just go back into the Tubi mine one more time because they had a pro-Trump documentary that was an hour long that I was very eager to watch. Now, again, just a word about Tubi. It's the free streaming service. Somebody on Twitter told me, I wish I could remember who it was, apologies, but they told me that it's the closest thing that we have to socialism on this continent. And I think that's true and wonderful. It's this great utopian place where so much content exists side by side. It's like going to the DVD rack at your local Goodwill, but it's a streaming service. You know, some of it's good. There are great things on there. Uh, A lot of it is not very good. So I was just there for the picking. I want to say in our defense, you know, Will's saying he he went to Tubi in search of something to watch, which I feel doesn't make us look very good. You know, we're just randomly flipping through the internet being like, oh, what's our episode? this week. But what all of you have to understand is that we've been at this since 2016. And there are only so many kitsch liberal and conservative films for us to watch. There are only so many swing votes and mans of the year. But don't cancel your Patreon membership, folks, because we've got a lot of these and we've got a lot of good movies that we're going to talk about, too. And they're still making them. And also, both Luke and I have been uh, having a bit of a travel schedule lately, and so we needed something that was an hour long. It won't always be like this, folks. Anyway, the movie is called One Nation Under Trump. It's from 2016. It was made during Trump's rise. It looks like it was cobbled together kind of between the primary and the presidential run itself. Uh, It allegedly cost $25,000 to make, which I want to know what that money was spent on. Maybe that's the submission fee to get on Tubi. I don't know. Uh, Before we talk about the movie, I just want to point out that the poster has a quote, a blurb on it that says, A riveting journey into Donald Trump's rise to political stardom. I was hooked from the get-go, says Daniel Bort. So I looked up Daniel Bort and could not find anybody named Dan... Like... I could find no writer, no filmmaker, nobody reputable whose name was Daniel Bort. This is like when Tommy Wiseau took out those posters all over Los Angeles, and there was a quote that just said, a film with the passion of Tennessee Williams, but then it wasn't attributed to anyone. So uh, somebody named Daniel Bort liked this movie. Uh, Again, calls it a riveting journey. I was hooked from the get-go. I would be interested in talking to this mysterious Daniel Bort about his reaction, because this movie is... Nothing more or less than footage from Trump's campaign appearances and speeches, along with just a fig leaf of biographical information at the beginning. Right. So I felt kind of let down by it because my interest was peaked right at the beginning because I thought, here's this pro-Trump documentary that begins with this very earnest voiceover from the director himself. It's totally earnest throughout, even as, you know, the clips that we're seeing from Trump, you know, it's Donald Trump. So he's being... He's in full Andrew Dice Clay mode throughout. Yeah, and yet, you know, the tone is so earnest. The director, you know, is basically talking like, you know, he sounds like Patrick Bateman when he's talking with total seriousness about top 40 music from the 1980s or whatever. So as Donald Trump is in, as you put it, full Andrew Dice Clay mode, the voiceover is saying stuff like, as with everything he did, the message was big, uncompromising, and in your face. Losing wasn't going to be on his agenda, and being anything less than extraordinary simply wasn't in his DNA as an American. So initially, I thought, okay, well, this is promising. We're going to get another one of those films, sort of vintage Michael and us, 
sort of like the Howard Dean lessons from an American primary or whatever. We're going to get sort of Michael Moore derivative, you know, gonzo documentary filmmaking where the director is himself a character. And, you know, I thought the film was going to be like, you know, my Trump journey. And we were going to get to, you know, follow him around as he went to rallies to, you know, uh, talk to the real Americans, you know, who were packing the rooms and stuff. But this documentary can't even do that. It's so fucking lazy uh, that for large stretches of it, five to ten minutes at a time is just uninterrupted unedited Donald Trump footage with no voiceover, you know, no editorializing, no editing, nothing, uh, which I suppose is kind of a relief because uh, Donald Trump can at least be entertaining and the director of this movie seems like a total bore. Yeah, I genuinely think that this is the longest exposure I've ever had to a Trump speech because I don't watch cable news. When I see the clips on my timeline, I, I just scroll right past them. So I don't think I'd ever really heard him talk this long. And, you know, what can you say? I can see his appeal. I mean, some of these clips are just classic <laughs> classic bonehead comedy you know it is amazing to just be immersed for you know five ten minutes at a time in donald trump's like absurdly circular speeches like there's one part where he's talking about the percentage of the vote they got in the new york primary and he's saying it was between 62 and 63 percent with three candidates and he's saying well and that would be impressive with two candidates with three candidates has anyone ever done that before i mean i think it's historic it's record-breaking but he can't help himself. So then he starts going back and rattling off very specific percentages he got in earlier states. And the percentages are all lower. But then he goes on another digression where he starts explaining it. That's because there were 13, 14, 15 candidates in the race. And then because of where he started the rant, he has to go back and he has to show how actually these lower percentages don't diminish the splendor of what he's achieved <laughs> and how actually getting 30% is in many ways more impressive than getting 63% because there were 14 candidates. Is any Anybody done that before, folks? I don't know. Yeah, this incredibly digressive and off-the-cuff way of speaking he has, where he basically can talk for 10 minutes without really saying anything, is totally extraordinary. My favorite part was when he was talking about how the media are liars. You know, they're really dishonest people. I mean, he, he, here's a newspaper, the Des Moines Register. I hate the Des Moines Register. I <laughs> yeah, then, then, then he gets all these people, and it's not even in Iowa, and, and he's like, oh, it's a terrible paper, and they're all they're booing. booing the Des Moines Register. <laughs> it's like, had any of those people heard of the Des Moines Register before that? But he goes off on this, like seriously, a stand-up comedy act about how, so I've got 41% in the polls, <laughs> and Ted Cruz has got 14% in the polls. Huge difference between those two numbers. And then the Des Moines Register says, Cruz surging. <laughs> in a scene like that, he's in full, like, Lenny Bruce reading his court transcripts on stage mode, but also, like, he is genuinely funny. Like, he has comic timing. Well, and this is the thing that I found kind of interesting about this movie is because I think it actually suggests that a certain number of Trump's fans really take him uh, with total seriousness. You know, we think of the MAGA thing as as fundamentally, you know, id-driven. And obviously that's a, a big factor in it. But I think this film unlocked a type of Trump fandom, which to me I wasn't really aware of. When this guy hears Donald Trump speak, he receives it with total earnestness. He doesn't get that Trump is kind of trying to be funny in some way. He doesn't really get that Trump is self-consciously a performer and that he's kind of doing something that's been honed through years on TV and that kind of thing. So, you know, 
when Trump rattles off uh, statistics about how well his books sold and things like that, it carries a kind of comic effect because it has some kind of a self-conscious absurdity to it or something like that. Well, it, it's funny you're right because when he when he starts being self-aggrandizing, there's part of him that genuinely wants you to know that he sold that many books. There's there's a whole part where he's talking about you know in 2000 I wrote this book where I, where I said that Osama bin Laden was a threat and that was a full year and a half before 9/11 and people said oh oh he said that in his book well, show me the book show me the book and he genuinely wants you to know that but he's also sort of playing it up he knows that he's a salesman and he knows he's being kind of funny by phrasing it that way right whereas when the director of this movie does the exact same thing it's just totally deadpan it's totally straight-faced so there's a part of this movie where he talks about Donald Trump, the author. That's the phrase he uses. <laughs> he just talks about him, uh, rattles off uh, different books, rattles off, you know, where they charted and the publishers of the books and that kind and of thing. And maybe his most important book <laughs> yeah, came in he... 2013 and it was called Crippled America. Like, again, it sounds like Patrick Bateman talking about Huey Lewis's catalog. That's what it sounds like. Or then at one point he starts talking about how Donald Trump made the ratings, the TV ratings for the RNC go up. And again, if Donald Trump did that, which I'm sure he did probably several times, there'd be a conscious element of performance to it. And for this guy, it's actually just some kind of objective metric that reveals the credibility of Donald Trump's pledge to make America great again. It's like, look, he made the RNC debates great again. What if he did that for the whole country? Oh, man, by the way, I really laughed at that part early on when Trump was talking about his decision to run for president. And he was like, the networks, they said, don't run, please. We renewed The Apprentice. It did great. It had great ratings. After 14 seasons, 14 seasons, long time for a TV show, but still had great ratings. The absolute best Trump clip in this movie to me was the one where he goes off on John Kasich's eating habits. <laughs> so if people don't remember, there were these photos that came out, I think just a few days before John Kasich ended up dropping out of the race. I can't even remember where he was, but he was just like in a diner or something somewhere. And he just has like more food in front of him than you've ever seen one person eat. And he was just so happy just devouring all this food. And Donald Trump was just having none of it. By the way, did you ever see a man eat like this? I never. I'm always working with my son. Little tiny pieces, Baron. Little tiny pieces. This guy's shoving pancakes. I never saw anything like it. It's pouring out of his mouth. And the cameras are on him. I don't know. Look, this, that's not presidential, I can tell you. Not presidential. So Kasich is doing worse than many of the people that left months ago. I mean, if you look at Marco Rubio, he did much better than Kasich. He had more. He, to this day, has more delegates. This is just a guy who's a stubborn guy who eats like a slob and shouldn't have press conferences while he's stuffing stuff down his throat. Honest, I've never seen anything like it. But this is a guy who's a stubborn guy. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. He's one for 42. And I would have won the one, but I was given a dirty poll by NBC where they came up with a poll. It's true. Because I thought I was winning Florida by a lot. This is a dirty business, this politics. I used to think real estate was tough. Real estate is like babies, all right? There's also a great montage of, you know, you know it, I know it, we all know it, uh, the classic moments of him laying waste to his rivals in the Republican debate saying, well, first of all, I don't even know why Rand Paul is even here. He's polling at 1%. He's in 11th place. There are too many people on stage. Or, you know, his his famous going off on Jeb Bush. And there's one moment where he's like, I'm polling at 40%. He's polling at 3%. And Jeb Bush is reduced to just saying, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. 
anyway, I don't want to sound too admiring because obviously he's a monster whose judges are about to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I mean, I hope Donald Trump being awful is something we can take for granted on this podcast. But I do think the Trump affect is important to talk about, particularly since it now seems to have become the lingua franca of the American right. I mean, Trump seems to have fused this political style uh, and his own personality with big R Republicanism. You know, Trumpism did at the outset did seem to have these kind of at least slight hints of ideological novelty, which was one of the things that the so-called never Trump conservatives were, you know, that was one of the things they were actually taking issue with in a big way. If you go back and you read the National Review's big editorial, I think, you know, the sort of marquee editorial of their never Trump issue. You know, I remember that getting circulated on like lib Twitter at the time in this very celebratory way where it was like, you know, read all the best lines from the National Review's epic takedown of Donald Trump. And if you go back and read that so-called takedown of Donald Trump, what you'll find is that a lot of it uh, was actually written through with this anxiety that Donald Trump was actually just too unpredictable to be a good standard bearer for conservatism. So the fear wasn't that Donald Trump was actually taking right wing politics in an even more authoritarian direction. It wasn't didn't, you know, didn't really have anything to do with the stuff he was saying about, you know, Mexicans or or women or Muslims or any of that stuff. It was, well, actually, he's attacking, you know, Reaganism. He's not going to be able to get the big tax cut for billionaires through that we needed, which, you know, I guess Trump owned them on that one as well as on so many other things. But so there were things like that at the start of Trumpism at the during his candidacy, uh, you know, stuff like uh, his criticism of NAFTA, his criticism of the Iraq war. He had these, you know, criticism of George Bush and aspects of American foreign policy. Saddam Hussein was not a good person. What he was good at was killing terrorists. Now Iraq is Harvard for training terrorists. And now look at our country. Look at the hospitals and schools. We become third world in many respects. Yeah, I mean, he did stuff like that, which in in addition to just being otherworldly in in its strangeness, did seem to deviate at least superficially in some ways from the standing Republican orthodoxy around certain issues. Now, obviously, when Donald Trump became president, That is not how he governed at all. Ideologically, I would argue he governed much like any right wing Republican president would govern. And he did a lot of the things that Republican presidents have wanted to do uh, for the past 50 years. You mentioned the judicial appointments. Obviously, there was the big tax cut and, you know, whatever kind of nebulous reform to uh, the the American health care system that he kind of kicked around. He didn't really do anything on that. You know, he certainly didn't do what I guess some feared he would do, particularly when COVID started, which was, you know, pair the racist aspects of the Republican agenda with some kind of exclusionary form of social democracy or a- or activist statism or anything like that. Trump, in many respects, just became a very conventional Republican. Big surprise. So I think really the, the biggest novelty about Donald Trump does come down to kind of his personal style and his personal affect and this very strange way of speaking that he has and his extremely odd rhetorical style and all that kind of thing, which have increasingly been taken up uh, by all these people who kind of compete running in state and local races, in particular for the coveted Trump endorsement. And of course, a lot of the people who are doing that, I mean, obviously you have people like J.D. Vance, who like a lot of Trump sycophants used to be a critic. You know, guys like that are still engaging in, uh, I think, this totally fruitless quest to carve out some version of Trumpism that is more kind of respectable, uh, that is closer, at least in in style, to what so-called movement conservatism has been uh, historically, something even that's maybe more presentable to liberals that, you know, you can take to your New York Times reading relative or something. Again, I think 
think that's a very fruitless quest and that the direction of travel for conservatism that we're going to keep seeing uh, really is Trumpian in a rhetorical and an aesthetic sense. And I think that's going to be true whether or not he runs in 2024. So in that sense, I think this film actually was interesting in spite of itself because it just gave you so much time to sit there and marinate on Donald Trump's incredibly peculiar way of speaking and, you know, what the appeal of that might have been. And it was interesting for me, like I said, to hear from the director who just has the most boring and straight down the line reading of Donald Trump. Like, as I said, it unlo- it seemed to unlock a type of Donald Trump fandom that I don't think I'd really encountered before. Obviously, a lot of what was appealing about Trump in those early months was the way that he would uh, own the libs and own his critics and, you know, drop really funny insults and truth bombs and that sort of thing thing. Listening to him talk, though, for extended periods of time, especially the parts in this documentary where you hear him, like, explain his theories of history and change (laughs) in great detail, I could see a fan of his having a similar sensation that so many liberals had when they watched Bill Clinton at the 2012 DNC. Remember in in that speech, so many people loved it because he was doing these sort of explainers, and he was saying to the audience, now, I I want you to listen to this as I explain to you how Paul Ryan's healthcare plan would work. For so many of the things that Trump says in these speeches, you really have to kind of follow his logic, and his logic will take you in all of these strange and sort of counterintuitive sometimes roots. There's one point where we hear him talk for an extended period of time about Obamacare. I think he's talking about it on the Today Show, and he says, we're going to get rid of Obamacare and replace it with something good, something different. And he says words to the effect of, the insurance companies have made a fortune on Obamacare. You've got lines around the block at these insurance companies. Well, now we're going to replace it with something where insurance companies can compete, where it's truly a free market, and all your premiums are going to go down, and it's going to become so easy. And likewise, we all know that Common Core is a disaster. Well, now we're going to replace it with something privatized, something where each individual community and and the parents in the community can decide what they want to teach their kids. And yeah, as you said, a lot of the detours in these arguments sound like they deviate from Republican orthodoxy. Like when he's talking about healthcare, he's doing a critique of these greedy private insurance companies that almost looks like it's going to veer into a left-wing critique of Obamacare, but then it veers right back into a right wing critique. Well, and and then he starts talking about Medicare and how actually Medicare is good and it works. So having made this market critique, he then proceeds to defend the non-market version of healthcare. But then he swerves right back immediately to kind of standard conservative talking points about, well, but we also have to fight the waste and abuse in Medicare. So it's just this digressive style of speaking that I guess is kind of the right wing version of both Bill Clinton's wonkiness and Barack Obama's kind of cypherdom, where you have these flourishes that appear to contain a lot of detail, but are also so kind of vague and catch-all that you can really find anything you want contained within them. And on top of everything else, he's very funny while he's doing all this. Like, I can see better now why it was such an irresistible cocktail for a lot of people. (laughs) Something else that I thought recurred in a lot of these Trump speeches is Trump very specifically uh, either implying or promising quite directly to make people's lives better. So at one point, uh, there's a clip of him in this where he says, you people are going to be so rich so fast, you don't even know. Uh, like, <laughs> he's basically saying, like, if if I become president, like, I will make you rich. Uh, and you see a lot of uh, other clips of him that are similar to this, where he's on the campaign trail and he's talking about, you know, specific companies that are responsible for local plant closures and things like that. And he's sort of saying, like, you know, this kind of thing won't happen, you know, when I'm president and that kind of thing. 
All of this made me think of something uh, Will Summer, the QAnon whisperer, uh, said to me when I interviewed him last year. So for those who haven't heard of him, Will Summer is a reporter at the Daily Beast and also a co-host of a podcast called Fever Dreams. And he's really been following QAnon, I think, in more detail than probably anyone else. You can sign up to our Patreon to hear uh, the interview I did with him that was uh, right at the beginning of last year after Biden's inauguration. And one of the things that I was asking him, how can you explain that QAnon took hold while Trump was president, right? I mean, usually conspiracy theories uh, are things that powerless people, people who feel like they're excluded from the halls of power, take up to rationalize or or explain, uh, you know, why they're excluded. You know, it's like we would have power except for the, this cadre of, you know, dark, shadowy interests that are keeping us out of power or, or because the, the state is covering up this dangerous secret that if it was revealed, you know, everything would change or whatever. QAnon is interesting for that reason, you know, because it starts to take hold when uh, the Republican Party controls every branch of government, basically. So very, very strange. And his answer was something I thought about uh, immediately uh, in a number of points throughout this movie when Trump is kind of promising people like, oh, you people are going to get rich, so rich so fast and, you know, or, or, you know, a plant like that. We're, we're going to put all the coal miners back to work uh, on, you know, day one when I'm president or whatever. Summer told me uh, that a lot of these people who became really ardent QAnon people really did think that uh, Donald Trump, you know, having him as president, it was going to solve all of their problems, like personally. Like it wasn't just going to be this kind of, you know, sweeping national victory for the Republican right. It was actually going to fairly immediately resolve, you know, their own problems around all kinds of things. Like they were going to own the libs so hard that their victory was going to be more than political. It was going to be it was going to be total. And so when that didn't happen, when Donald Trump is president and then, you know, he's just being investigated by Congress and actually all the uh, outsourcing doesn't stop and all the factories don't reopen, etc. Rather than conclude, well, maybe Donald Trump is actually just like a liar and a sleaze and a billionaire who's just functionally indistinguishable from a lot of the suits that he beat on his way to the nomination. Instead of concluding that, they told themselves, well, you know, Donald Trump would do all of those things, but actually he's this, you know, agent in a grand, you know, decades long struggle against the deep state that somehow goes back to the Kennedy assassination. And, you know, he's fighting this global network of, uh, you know, pedophiles and child traffickers and all the rest of it. And so actually the problems are so vast that, you know, we just got to, we just got to trust the plan and eventually, you know, America will be made great again. And so apparently they even did that as like, you know, they were all watching Biden's inauguration, you know, waiting for like, okay, at any moment now, you know, the, the National Guard's going to, you know, land on Capitol Hill and lock up all the Democrats. And they're going to stop the inauguration and swear Trump in as God Emperor for life. And when that didn't happen, after a few hours of confusion, as this is how Will Summer described it, they just started saying, well, actually, the storm is coming uh, this summer. Or uh, actually, you know, the United States has been in receivership with the city of London since the 19th century. And so, you know, Trump wasn't going to resolve uh, all of that in, in one term. You know, so again, we just got to trust the plan. Very similar, I think, amusingly enough, to uh, some of the things that Obama partisans told themselves, you know, post-2010, when, you know, Obama was going to completely overhaul the American system and inaugurate a new consensus that was going to last for 50 years and, you know, force the Republican Party to fight on liberal turf, etc. And then, you know, then Obama immediately gets creamed in the midterms. And instead of asking questions about, well, maybe there's there are inadequacies in this style of politics, or maybe it isn't uh, what, you know, a lot of us were promised or what we thought it would be, you know, instead of that, it's, well, don't worry, he's playing 24-dimensional chess, and the deal he just made with Mitch McConnell is actually all part of the plan. Uh, Just trust the plan. I see over here, Trump digs coal. Look at that. Trump digs coal. That's true. That's true. I do. 
So I've always been fascinated by it. I've been fascinated by the whole sequence of doing it. Uh, it's incredible, the engineering now that's involved and the safety and all that's taken place over the last number of years, especially over the last 10 years. And all of it's getting safe. And as it gets safe, they're taking it away from you in a different way. And I just think you're amazing people. And you watch what happens. If I win, we're going to bring those miners back. You're going to be so proud of your president. You're going to be so proud of your country. Well, I'm not quite sure where this uh, where this all fits in, but I think there was one other thing about Donald Trump's uh, rhetorical style that I noticed, I, which I suppose is is somewhat related to what I just said. Obviously, people have made the parallel, or at least people in Toronto have made the parallel between you know Rob Ford or or Doug Ford, alternatively, who's probably going to get a new mandate as premier in a few days. By the way, people have compared uh, you know the Ford brothers to Donald Trump plenty. But there's a specific parallel that I think occurred to me for the first time watching this film, which is that, you know, Donald Trump, like the Fords, really has this kind of like deliverism to his uh, speaking style. He's always making these very specific and quite granular promises. He's, he's always promising to kind of workshop individual local problems. Like there's no, there's not really like much of a structural analysis to any of it. It's always just like, okay, well, I'm in this particular state where a factory closed and the bad people made the factory closed. When I president, I'm going to go talk to the people, the mean businessmen who closed the factory. And I know some of these people, they're great people. I've worked with them, but sometimes they make bad decisions. I'm going to go to them and I say, no, 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 keep the factory open. Donald Trump's always doing stuff like that. And this is very much what Rob Ford in particular was was famous for as well. As a city councilor, he was famous for kind of just going around and workshopping individual people's problems. And I remember the Toronto writer Edward Keenan once uh, observing, I think this was quite apt, that really this this political style came out of the the family business ethos that the Ford brothers inherited because they inherited their dad's family business. So there's a sense in which I think this style and, and you know, this makes sense uh, when you consider what Donald Trump's, uh, you know, what the tip of the spear of his uh, of his own electoral base is. There's a sense in which you can think about this as just an extension of a kind of petite bourgeois ideology. It's a way of thinking about political problems that's very much uh, akin to the way you solve problems in a family business that might have, you know, or in just in a small business, you know, that might only have 15 or 20 or I don't know, 50 employees, where, you you know, there's there's a problem somewhere, you know, something's not getting done. And incidentally, Doug Ford's slogan in the current Ontario election is just get it done or let's get it done, something like that. But you have a problem and you just you go and have a stern word. You know, the boss goes to the relevant, you know, employee or business partner who or whoever and just has a stern word and through steely determination works out the problem. And I don't think it had ever occurred to me that Donald Trump was channeling precisely that in a lot of his speeches. And I feel like it really makes sense if you're trying to understand his appeal, uh, why that would be so appealing to an affluent suburban, you know, petit bourgeois constituency in particular. Over here, over there, freedom and liberty everywhere. Oh, say can you see it's not so easy, but we have to stand up tall. 